You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. We'll read to verse 31. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the Lord asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Our text this afternoon is taken from the same chapter, Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 32 to verse 51. And so we continue our reading of the scriptures here in Acts 13, where the Apostle Paul is speaking and he says in verse 32 and onwards, We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. 
So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. For when God, or David, had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when we look over what is called the Christian year, and there is little doubt that Easter ranks right up there at the top of the list. Indeed, Easter, together with Christmas, is among the most popular of Christian feast days. And its popularity is mostly because of the joy and the celebration that these events bring into our lives. But then if Easter is among the most cherished events in the Christian calendar, it can also be said that public profession of faith stands out as one of the most cherished events in a Christian's life and walk with God. Of course, baptism is important as well, but most of us were baptized as infants and thus didn't really, you might say, experience it. And marriage, too, if we are married, is a highlight as well as anniversaries, graduations, and other events. But still, I would say to you this afternoon that there is a sense in which public profession of faith stands out. Some call it an answer to baptism. Others call it a day of commitment. 
And still others uh, take the view that this is a spiritual kind of coming of age. Well, whatever you call it, if you take it seriously, it will always represent a special moment in your spiritual life. And I pray that this is the case for all of you young people here this afternoon. I really hope that this day will always be special in your lives. And then not because God is saying yes to you, because he's been doing that for years and decades already, but because you are giving your yes to him. And you get to do it before family and friends and brothers and sisters, but especially before your God and Father in heaven. What a glorious opportunity. But then, beloved, let me also add something else. For a while it is true that Easter and public profession of faith are both great events. There's also more here. For there is a sense in which Easter can, does, and always will have a direct impact on your profession. And indeed, on all of us who have professed our faith in Almighty God. In what way does it make an impact? To what extent? Well, let's turn to our text of this afternoon. I preached to you on the theme, what difference does a risen Savior make? And we're going to see that he promises and gives us, first of all, life in the face of death, forgiveness in the face of guilt, light in the face of darkness. Well, beloved, as you can see, our text this afternoon for this special occasion is rather long and detailed, and we don't have the time to deal with every one of the aspects of it. So we're going to have to content ourselves with looking at some of the main features or elements of this passage of Holy Scripture. Yes, and then notice that the first basic feature that sticks out so very clearly here has to do with life. Indeed, here the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel in what is called modern-day Turkey, in a place called Pisidian Antioch. And it's called that because there is another Antioch located in Syria. There is Syrian Antioch and there is Pisidian Antioch. And the Apostle Paul is busy here in our text preaching in the latter place. Only notice that he's preaching, and that's also a bit different, he's preaching to a rather mixed audience. It's composed mostly of Jews, but also of converts to Judaism, as well as to what are called God-fearing Gentiles. And then, as the Apostle Paul does so often, he begins his proclamation with a kind of review or lesson in redemptive history. He starts this time in Egypt. He moves on to Canaan. He mentions Samuel, Saul, and David. And then, notice, from David he makes this huge jump all the way to John the Baptist and to Jesus Christ. And that's where he stops. He stops at Jesus Christ. He first stops at the events of Good Friday. Then he stops but the Sabbath day in between, and then suddenly, it's Easter. Easter in Acts. 
And what does he say about Easter? Well, listen, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And verse 34, God raised him from the dead, never to decay. And verse 37, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Note, over and over again, the Apostle Paul is making the very same point. Jesus has been raised. Jesus is no longer dead. Jesus never decays. You see, the Apostle Paul preaches a raised, risen, non-decaying Savior. Yes, and notice as well that he does this on the basis of two things. First, he does it on the basis of witnesses. In verse 31, he says, And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, And they are now his witnesses to our people. In other words, Paul is saying this this resurrection is neither fiction nor fable. It's been seen, it's been witnessed, it's been verified and proven. Any number of disciples and followers have seen Jesus Christ alive after he died. And they can tell you about him. If you doubt, you should go and talk to them, interview them. Why? They're still circulating around as witnesses in his day, the Apostle Paul says. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, the first basis on which I am preaching the risen Christ is on the basis of eye and ear witnesses. And the second reason I am preaching him is on the basis of ancient prophecy. He quotes Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 55. In other words, God the Father predicted over and over again, years before it ever happened, that this would take place. So when it finally did happen, it's no surprise at all. Paul says, what God promised our fathers... He has fulfilled for us. The word had predicted that the Messiah would rise again. The witnesses predict that they have seen the risen Messiah. And together, they assert that there is no room for doubt. In short, beloved, you and I, have a risen Savior. And what we celebrate together today is no myth, no allegory, no mystic kind of symbolism. Maybe you read it as well this past week in the Vancouver Sun, the comments of the Dean of Christ Church Cathedral, the Reverend Peter Elliott, who says that instead of teaching that the Easter story is about the literal resurrection of a corpse, 
He says we should view it as a mystical account of a new experience of God. Something beyond the confines of human language. Well, beloved, what we celebrate today isn't just a new experience of God, but it is the resurrection of a corpse. It is. Say the scriptures and say the witnesses. It's real. It's a fact. It's true. You and I have a living, non-decaying Savior. You and I love, serve, and worship a Savior who has been raised and thus has conquered His grave. And not just His grave. But also our grave. In other words, through faith in him, we too get to share in his great victory. And of course, this doesn't exempt us from dying. That is, of course, unless the Lord returns before that happens. But should he not come before we die, we need not worry. For when we die, a part of us goes into the grave, but another part of us goes to be with Christ. Death for us means separation. But the scriptures say it's separation only for a time. Only for a little while. For we have these promises. In Christ, all will be made alive. We will all be changed. We shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven, Paul says. And we shall be raised imperishable in glory and in power. A spiritual body. To put it very simply, beloved, thanks to Jesus Christ, you and I as believers can look through the grave And beyond the grave. And you know what this does. It gives us a whole new basis for looking at life. Looking at the future as well as the present. It gives us what the world doesn't have. This year already as a congregation we have stood at the graveside four times. We stood there reflecting on lives lived long and lives lived short. We stood there with tears, but never, ever without hope. The light of Easter fell over all of those graves. And it reminded us that because he lives, we live as well. And what an encouragement that gives us all. And also you young people here this afternoon, you're not committing your life today to the service of a dead savior or to some kind of mystical experience or to a temporary cause, or to a huge exercise in wishful thinking. 
No, you're saying your I do to the life-creating Father, to the life-giving Spirit, to the death-conquering Savior and Son of God. God has placed eternity in your hearts. God calls you to a life that never ends. Hang on to this life and live it every day with confidence, with purpose, and with anticipation. And so, beloved, the first thing that the Apostle Paul dwells on in our text is the fact that we have a risen, non-decaying Savior. The second thing that he dwells on in this part of Holy Scripture is that we have a forgiveness-working Savior as well. Now, you may wonder about that. Why does the Apostle Paul stress that particular point in this situation? Well, the answer is not so hard to come up with, for think about it. What are the two biggest burdens that we carry through this life? I would say to you, the first is death. None of us want to die. None of us want to think too much about dying. None of us want to contemplate what it's like to lie in the heart of the earth. Everyone hates it and wants to avoid it. Death is still, even in the Christian context, death is still an enemy. And therefore also the first burden that we face. Well, what's the second burden? I would say to you, the second burden is most likely guilt. Why do I say that? Because none of us live perfect lives. We all think, say, and do things that trip us up, that embarrass us, that bother us, that hurt others. And even more than that, we know deep down that we all live lives that are so often out of step with God. He's holy, and we're so often profane. He's perfect, and in so many ways we are imperfect. He's just, and we can be so terribly unjust. He is right, and we can so often be so wrong. And of course, that's rather abstract. Let's bring it down to earth. Do any of you here live lives as perfect sons and daughters? As perfect parents, perfect husbands, perfect wives, perfect children, perfect friends? Perfect believers? We don't, do we? We all have our blemishes, our flaws, and our warts. Some are obvious, some we cover up. 
But you know, we all have them. We all have our struggles, be it with temper or desire or with the tongue or with the eyes or with the lust of the heart or the pride of life. In other words, guilt is a facet of living in this broken down world and in this incomplete life. And you know, our God knows that. He knows all about it. And that's why He does something about it too. He sends us His Son as an answer to our guilt. The Apostle Paul declares in verse 38, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Do you hear that? Through faith in Jesus Christ, We're forgiven. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're justified. Through faith in Jesus Christ, our slates are wiped clean. Christ Jesus comes and sets us free. And that means for all of us. Also for you young people, it's possible to live a life and to study and to work in a redeemed manner. And of course you'll stumble. If you think that profession of faith is like life insurance that will keep you from tripping up, you're mistaken. Profession doesn't give you that kind of guarantee. But what the gospel does is give you a savior. And you can always turn to. Always plead with, always call on to cover all the sins you do against him and against one another. And he will. He will cover your sins. He will remove your guilt. He will forgive you. And he will restore you. But then, beloved, there's also something else for a look at our text again. It speaks about life in the face of death. It speaks about forgiveness in the face of guilt. It also speaks about light in the face of darkness. After the Apostle Paul finishes his sermon in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, the people follow him and Barnabas. They have a lot of questions to which they want answers. They also want to encourage these two servants of God. And one more thing, they invite Paul to speak to them again on the following Sabbath day. And you know, the rumor mill must have been going all that week into overdrive for when the next Sabbath day arrives, it looks as if the whole city has gathered together to listen to Paul. The apostle is all the rage. Only not quite. For when some in the Jewish community see all this attention that the apostle Paul is receiving, they start to badmouth him. No doubt they contradicted and twisted what Paul said about Jesus. 
as well as about other things. So what does he do? Does he enter into a debate with them? Does he ignore them? What does he do? Well, it says in verse 46 that both Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. And it also quotes them as saying, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. What Paul is saying here is that this unbelief and this resistance of the Jews has brought about a fundamental shift. Up until now, the gospel always went to the Jews first. Whenever Paul or any of the other apostles went to a new town or city, they first would go to the synagogue and they would try to win over their countrymen to the gospel. But no longer. From now on, the gospel will go straight to the Gentiles. Now, why is this? Of course, as I mentioned, it's because of Jewish resistance to the gospel. But you know, it's also about something else. It relates to the fact that the Jews had refused to embrace their prophetic an evangelistic calling. Paul quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 6, where God says, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It would appear that the Jews had fallen under the illusion. But salvation was kind of their exclusive preserve. They considered the Gentiles unworthy. They looked down their long noses at them. They dismissed them as inferior, unless, of course, perhaps, maybe they took over some of the customs and ceremonies of the Jews. But by and large, they saw no need to share the faith. With these people? Why bother to spread salvation to the ends of the earth? And you know what will happen. It will get contaminated and compromised. And it will get contorted. So why don't we just preserve it in our own nice, tidy, neat little corner? Beloved, what we have here is nothing else than pride. And conceit. Instead of living by grace, these people thought they could live by race. And the result? You know what happens to them? You know what happens to the Jews? God pulls the plug on them. He made them to be a light. He called them. To be a light. But they refused. And God unplugs these so-called light bearers. So now what? Are the lights out? 
Everywhere? Is everyone now living in darkness? No, for look, not only does the gospel go to the Gentiles, but God now turns the Gentiles into light. He plugs them in. Verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed to eternal life believed. And then verse 49, As the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. You see, God wants his people to be a light. And if the Jews will not light up the world, then he'll find other people who will light up the world. And that's true today as well. All of us, also these young people here this afternoon, have been called upon to be a light. To quote the Apostle Paul's words to the Philippians, they are to be like shining stars in the universe. He wants them, he wants us to be so plugged into Jesus Christ by faith that we all become emitters of light. And so young people, Because here's your calling and your challenge. The God who gives you life, the God who gives you forgiveness, is the same God who calls on you to be light. Indeed, he calls on all of us to be light. And that means don't be timid. Don't be afraid. Don't be disobedient. Don't worry about what other people will say. Be bold and courageous. Let your light shine. And of course, of course that will generate a reaction. Some will hate you and mock you. Look at what happens to Paul and Barnabas in the last verses of our text. Look at what happens to them. But, but you know, never mind. Look at what and who has the last word. It's joy and it's the Holy Spirit. The disciples, it says in verse 52, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Persecution did not deter them. It emboldened them. It made them strong And it made them laugh. Indeed, the Holy Spirit steps into the breach and supplies what is needed in the life of God's people. And you know, that's always the way it's been in the church of Jesus Christ. Be faithful and God will be there for you. He will be there with His help, His grace, His spirit. 
He will keep right on showing you that your risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, really, truly, makes all the difference in the world. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.